0: Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. Again, a huge thank you to uh, Brian Nix for filling in for me last week and for kind of taking you through the Gospel of John and John's use of the word world. Um, Even today, we're going to get to a verse where uh, John the Baptist describes Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So. You'll have a better understanding of what that word means and why John, the gospel writer, is using it. John chapter 1, verse 19, begins really the actual narrative portion of John's gospel. John 1, 1 through 18, was a historical, uh, excuse me, a theological prologue. It wasn't historical, it wasn't um, based in narrative um, historical fact, it was based in. Theological, doctrinal truth, in fact. And we've taken three uh, sermons to go through verses 1 through 18. And now we get to John's section where he he deals with the actual account, the actual narrative of Jesus' life. Actually, in verses 19, John chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through chapter 2, verse 11, John, the the gospel writer, details one chronological week of Jesus' life one week. Day one is found in verses 19 through 28. Um, then in verse 20, uh, 29, if you look at 29, it says, the next day John about to saw Jesus. That's day two. 29 through 34 is day two. Day three is verses 35 through 39. Again, uh, verse 35. Again, the next day John was standing. Day 4 is chapter 1, verses 40 through 42. Day 5 is chapter 1, verse 43 through 51. Day 6 is really kind of a travel day. Nothing is explicitly mentioned, but day 7 in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, On the third day there was a wedding. And so we can have a a chronology of one week in Jesus' life. So John's going to focus in on one specific week of Jesus' earthly life, of his earthly ministry. The really cool thing about what we're going to do today is is harmonize. We're going to harmonize, even as uh, Pastor John Piper talked about harmony this morning, about different voices coming together and having different parts that all work together in unison. That's what we do when we fit all of the Gospels together, when we try to seamlessly zip them up. That's called harmonizing the Gospels. And we have to do that with the book of John specifically because... Turn to Matthew, actually. Matthew chapter 4. I want to show you what all of the synoptic gospels do. Synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic comes from the word um, sin together, um, optic, seen So they see the same events together. John is not a synoptic gospel. He's writing later. He's writing probably around 82 to 85 AD. He's writing way later than the synoptic gospels. And he's writing with the understanding that his recipients, his readers already have read the synoptic gospels. So he's filling in the gaps. He's not trying to give much of the same information. He's giving new information and he's filling in those gaps for us, um, through his gospel. And I want to show you that in Matthew chapter four, verse 11, Matthew writes, then the devil left Jesus and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So, Remember the baptism of Jesus Christ? Jesus was baptized, and then immediately, the the gospel writers say, immediately the Spirit thrust him into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days. At the end of this temptation, verse 11, at the end of the temptation, the devil leaves, angels come, and minister to Jesus. Then verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. So Matthew, Mark, Luke all say the exact same thing, that Jesus, after the temptation, withdrew to Galilee. If all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would think that right after the temptation, Jesus just packed up his bags, moved back up to Galilee, moved to Capernaum, and started his earthly ministry. But John chapter 1 through 4 gives us eight months to a year's worth of Jesus' public ministry that is not recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so you can really write John chapter 1 through 4, stick it into Matthew 4, 11, and 12. Right in the middle of Matthew 4, 11 through 12 is John chapter 1 through 4. Eight months to a year in John 1 through 4 fits there in between Matthew 4, 11 through 12. If all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would, we would come to the conclusion that Jesus' earthly public ministry was a year and a half long. But because John is writing later, and because John is giving us a fuller picture, he's filling in the holes that Matthew, Mark, and Luke decided not to write about, we see that Jesus' earthly public ministry was actually three and a half years, not one and a half years. So we get a fuller picture in John chapter 1. Remember, John, uh, the gospel of John is 90% unique to John himself. So he's trying to give us a full picture. What's Jesus doing in this period of eight months to a year that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not record? He's gathering disciples, and that's probably why they didn't record it. kind of seems like a boring period of time. He's just going around preaching, gathering followers, and then he's going to move all the way up to Capernaum, establish a hub where the gospel can go forth, and his public ministry really kicks off then. So why does John include this week that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't include? Why does he include all these, these events? Again, we know the reason, and it's, it's here on these banners. John is trying to prove to us that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, sent by God, and is the Son of God, namely, he is equal to God. And therefore, we must believe his message, and by believing in him, we will have life in his name. So, when we come to John chapter 1, and you can turn back to John chapter 1, verse 19, when we come here, we're actually not even going to see the baptism of Jesus. That's where we are chronologically, but we're not even going to see that. John, the gospel writer, decides, you know what? You have the understanding of it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all chronicle for you what happened at the baptism. We know what happened. So John says, let's take a couple weeks later. It's actually about six weeks after the baptism of Jesus Christ. We find ourselves in John chapter 1, verse 19. About six weeks before this account that we're going to read is the baptism of jesus in between the baptism and this account is the temptation of jesus and we're going to need to know all these things as we kind of piece these uh, gospels together and get a full picture but for this morning we're going to cover a lot of ground it'll be quick for this morning we're going to listen to john the baptist it's john the gospel writer preaching about john the baptist preaching about jesus We're going to listen to John the Baptist's testimony. We got a little bit of a picture of who John is uh, earlier in chapter one, and now we're going to get the historical account, the historical narrative. We can really break it down into the days. Uh, John has three main messages over the course of three days, and they really go out to three different people groups. John has three main messages over the course of three days that we're going to see this morning, and they go to three different people groups. Day one is in verses 19 through 28. It's the largest section. We'll spend the bulk of our time there. His message in day one is Jesus is here. The Messiah is here. Technically, it's the Christ is here. The Messiah is here. I baptized him. I know who he is. He's here. I don't know where he is, by the way, because what just took place I baptized him and then gone in, into the wilderness. He was thrust in the wilderness. He was in the temptation for 40 years. I don't know where he is, but I know he's here. I baptized him. He's here. And he's preaching to the Jews um, and he's telling them, your Messiah has come. He's in your midst. Day two is verses 29 to 34. And John's message is, look to him, behold the lamb. Now I see him. I know who he is. Not only is he here, that's him. I know who he is. And he points to him. And he preaches to the masses on that day. He preaches to the crowds of people. Day three is verses 35 through 42. And his message is very simply, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. And he preaches that message very quickly, quietly to John's disciples, to John the Baptist's disciples. And he says, follow Jesus. So three messages, three days, three people groups. Day one, the Messiah's here somewhere, don't know where he is. He left, I baptized him, and then he left. I don't know where he is, but he's here. Day two, there he is. Behold the Lamb of God. I see him, that's him. Day three, now follow him. And before we dive into these verses, just one more point by way of introduction. I want to I answer this question. This is the question I had as I was studying this. Why, John the Gospel writer, why do you spend more time on John the Baptist? We already got a little bit of a picture of him. Why go to him why, do what the, why not do what the synoptic Gospels did, which is just bypass this? Why stare at this account? I want to give you five reasons why the Gospel writer includes these verses for us. Why does he include John's testimony? Number one, because John was a prophet. John was a prophet. He was the only prophet in Israel. Everyone knew him to be a prophet. You remember Matthew 21, verse 26? The Pharisees try to trip Jesus up and they say, they ask him a, a really dumb question, try and trip him up. And Jesus answers by asking them a question and says, uh, you answer this question for me and I'll answer your question. Um, who, who sent John the Baptist? Was, was his baptism, was his authority from God or from man? And the Pharisees gather and they say, how should we answer? Because if we answer from man, we're going to be in trouble because why? Very explicitly. Very explicitly. Everyone knows that John is a prophet sent by God. So if we say John was sent by man, he just had a message that was given to him by man, just an idea, conjured up a great idea, but it's just a man-made idea. If we say that about John the Baptist, then all the people are going to despise us because they know he's a prophet. We know he's a prophet. If we say from God, then Jesus is going to say, why didn't you listen to his testimony about me? And so they say, we don't have an answer. And Jesus says, well, neither will I answer you. So number one, everyone knew this was a prophet. He was the only prophet in Israel at that time. Jesus obviously is going to be the prophet. We'll even see that. Number two, John came from a priestly family. His lineage was of the highest kind, religiously speaking. So if you want to have a testimony from somebody that will be a credible witness, a credible account, it's a good idea to get a guy from the priestly family, a religious man. He comes from a great lineage. Listen to him. Number three, he lived completely separate from the religious system. So this is kind of the other side of that same coin of his religiosity. Um, He came from a religious family, but he knew that the religious system was corrupt. He knew the religious system, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin were preaching a gospel of works-based righteousness. You do these things and you will earn God's favor. That was the gospel that the Pharisees preached. John knew that, so he separated himself from that. If you're wanting to hear the true gospel, don't go to the Pharisees. Don't go to the Sadducees. Go to somebody who lives completely set apart from that corrupt and heretical religious system. Number four, John's birth was prophesied by an angel. No Pharisee could say that. No Sadducee could say that. Nobody could say that except for John and Jesus. His birth was prophesied by an angel. Number five, his birth was miraculous as a whole. Specifically, he was sent by God because, you remember, um, his parents were... Uh, advanced in years, unable to conceive. They were barren and they were advanced in years. And yet God sent them a child to do the work of the forerunner, the one who was going to come before the Messiah. So five reasons. So when we ask John the Gospel writer, why do you include John the Baptist's testimony? Why should we listen to him? Because the most credible man to hear the testimony of Jesus Christ, to hear who Jesus is, the most credible man at that time, is John the Baptist. And everyone knew that. Everyone knew that. That's why the masses are flocking to him. And so John started his gospel by saying, let me tell you who Jesus is. He's the son of God. I'm writing so that you would believe he is who he claims to be. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is God, very God. And I want you to believe that. So he starts by telling us that, by proving that to us. And then he says, hey, if you don't, don't take my word for it, listen to John the Baptist. He says the exact same thing. And he's just going to pile it on and on so that we know Jesus, without a shadow of a doubt, is God, very God. So let's dive in. Day one. We'll we'll kind of split this up into the three days if you want to have an outline. Day one, day two, day three. Day one, verses 19 through 28. This is the testimony of John, John the Baptist, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So John the Baptist has been preaching for about a year at this point. He's been preaching for about a year. He's been gathering massive crowds. Matthew 11:11, Jesus says there was no one greater than John in your midst. He says up until this time, nobody has been born that's better than this man. There's no one greater than him. Listen to him. So Jesus says he's an amazing man. Herod, who's not a happy dude, he's not a nice, happy, kind fellow, He says, you know what, I think I want to listen to John's testimony. He wanted to go see John, ultimately ended up hearing his testimony, hearing the the truth of the gospel, almost believed the message. Large multitudes were flocking from Jerusalem to hear. It's as if the Sanhedrin, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, are at their church services, if you will. And they're like, man, not as many people as there normally are. And somebody stands up and says, I I know, I'm I'm sorry. My buddy uh, took a hundred of them to go listen to John the Baptist. And the Sanhedrin says, that's that's not going to do. For our attendance figures, we need to figure out who this man is. Um, Back then, even as it is today in Israel, messianic expectations were higher than high could be. Today, even today in Israel, when I was in Israel, um, there was a billboard. There was a man who claimed to be the Messiah, And there was a billboard. You could see it pretty much every day. Wherever you were driving, there was a billboard of this man's face. It's kind of like our billboards for president. Like, hey, vote for me. It's like, hey, I'm the Messiah. No joke. And then here was the the greatest litmus test as to whether this man truly was the Messiah. Because a lot of people believed he was. When I was there, about three months into my stay in Israel, he passed away. And so everybody went, well, that wasn't him. (laughs) That wasn't, he didn't do anything that we thought the Messiah was going to do. We, we had hope. We thought it's not him. So, too, at this time uh, when John is writing, and specifically when John the Baptist was baptizing, so many people would jump up left and right and say, hey, follow me. I'm the Messiah. Follow me. I'm a good Jew. I'm the Messiah. Follow me. Um, they would actually do. You remember when Jesus is tempted by the devil? And one of the temptations is on the pinnacle of the, of the temple, throw yourself off. That was actually something that people would do if they claimed to be Messiah. Josephus records this for us, that people would say, I'm the Messiah. And everybody would go, yeah, right, prove it. And they would go, okay, I'll show you. And they'd go up to the temple and they'd say, I'm going to jump off and I'm going to land safely because God will send his angels to prove to you I'm the Messiah. And Josephus writes in our vernacular, a lot of people died from that. A lot of people died from that. They weren't, they weren't able to do that. That's why Satan brings that temptation in. This is a a very real account. So, the Jews sent to John the Baptist priests and Levites from Jerusalem. Now, just as John is very, John the Gospel writer is very specific when he uses the word world, he's also very specific when he uses the word Jews. Very, very specific. Almost every time he uses the word Jew or Jews in the Gospel of John, It's not in a good way. It's unbelieving Israel. Um, It's not ethnic necessarily. It's not um, racial necessarily. It's almost always, there's one, maybe one exception in John 8, but it's almost always used to speak of unbelieving Israel. Um, People that are listening to the message of the Messiah and rejecting it. That's these people right here. They're listening to the message of the Messiah and rejecting it. And they're sent by, we can drop down to verse 24, they had been sent from the Pharisees. So we have priests and Levites together in 19 is the Sanhedrin, a group of 70 people that was kind of a mix of Pharisees had to see together to uh, govern the temple, govern the, the religious system. Um, the Pharisees in verse 24 specifically were the ones who sent uh, these Jews to figure out what's going on with this man, John the Baptist. Is he just another fraud? Is he just another man who claims to be the Messiah? And we're going to have to put him in his rightful place. So they ask him, who are you? Who are you? End of verse 19. And he confessed, John the Baptist confessed, and did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, that's clunky even in our English Bible. Confessed, did not deny but confessed. The reason why it's clunky, it's it's even clunkier in the Greek. Um, Number one, it's it's legal terminology. That's one of the reasons why it's clunky. Legal terminology is very clunky. Um, this is legal terminology. It's basically um, tantamount to us saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what he's saying. I I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and what I'm going to say to you, I'm not the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah, and they both mean anointed one, the king sent by God himself to rule and to reign. I'm not him. I'm not him. So the first question is, And it's kind of implied by the the Jews sent by the Pharisees. Are are you the Messiah? And he says, no, I'm not. It's almost frustration in what he's saying. I'm not. Don't don't think that that's who I am. So they ask him again a different question. Question number two is what then? Are you Elijah? And he says, I'm not I'm John. My name's John. Everybody knows I'm John. I'm not Elijah. Now, there's There's a little bit of a difficulty here. I don't know if you know this difficulty. This difficulty was raised for me when I was in uh, college, when I went to Moorpark College. Somebody said they didn't believe the Bible because of this difficulty. So that's the only reason I want to bring this to you is there's a little bit of a discrepancy here. John says, I'm not Elijah. And guess who said he was Elijah? Jesus. (laughs) So we have a little bit of a problem when John says, I'm not him. And Jesus says, yeah, he was him. Um, how, How do we reconcile that? Not taking too much time. Let me just give you some references. Matthew chapter 17, after the transfiguration, um, Jesus tells his disciples, uh, hey, guess what? I am truly the Messiah. You believe it. You know it. And they say, we know it now. Without a shadow of a doubt, we know who you are because you just pulled back your humanity, showed forth your glory. We see it. We know you are God, very God. And then they say, but why, if you truly are the Messiah, why didn't John testify that he was Elijah? Because we know, based on Malachi, we know that there was a promise, a prophecy, that Elijah had to come before the Messiah came as the forerunner. And Jesus just says, John, in essence, this is what Jesus says, John was absolutely sufficient to fulfill the Elijah prophecy. In Matthew 11, he goes on to say, If you were willing to accept John's testimony of me, that I am the Son of God, the Messiah, if you were willing to accept that, then he was Elijah. He would have been Elijah. But since you have rejected his message, Elijah is yet to come. That's the very words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verses 12 through 13. If you had received his message, he would have been Elijah, prophesied of the forerunner to the Messiah. He would have done it perfectly. But since you've rejected me and I'm going to come again, then guess what? The forerunner is going to come again as well. Elijah is yet to come. The business of theology is very simple. Can I give you the, the formula? If you want to be a good theologian, park enough words next to each other to make it look like and sound like you know what you're talking about. If you want to be a good theologian, that's what you do. So, if you want to be a good theologian, in regards to John being Elijah, this is, this is the phrase. It's called a contingency fulfillment or a contingency prophecy. If the Jews had received Jesus as the Messiah, then John would have been the full fulfillment of the Malachi 4 uh, prophecy that the forerunner would be elijah that he had to come but since they rejected that promise in malachi chapter four, five, four verse five is yet to come elijah will come a lot of people think that elijah is one of the two witnesses in revelation uh, chapter 11 um, he could be a lot of people speculate it was it's elijah and moses in revelation 11 could be does it have to be elijah obviously not doesn't have to actually be elijah because john was able to sufficiently fulfill that promise and that prophecy by not being technically Elijah. How does that happen? It happens in Luke chapter 1 verse 17 when Gabriel says that John will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So He doesn't have to be literal, physical Elijah, but he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. So the Pharisees of the day know, okay, Elijah has to come before the Messiah. So are you Elijah? And I think in a guarded way, in a discerning way, in a shrewd as serpents, gentle as doves way, John says, I'm John. My name's John. I'm not Elijah. I think he knew I am coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, but to the unbelieving Jews, he says, you wouldn't even believe it. You wouldn't even accept it. So that's, that's the problem. Hopefully that's a little bit of a solution for you. Um, I'm not Elijah. My name's John. So then they say, Are you the prophet? Literally, it's are you that prophet? Are you that prophet? A prophet that was prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Uh, God says that he will raise up a prophet like Moses unto Israel. And the Jews thought that that was the Messiah. And they actually thought correctly because Peter says in Acts chapter 3, verse 19 through 22, that the prophet is Jesus. And Stephen says the same thing in Acts chapter 7, verse 37. The prophet mentioned and quoted in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, is Jesus. He is the Messiah. So they're asking, are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you that prophet, the Messiah? And John says, no, I'm not. Verse 22. (laughs) After three attempts, the men finally just say, fine, who are you? Tell us who you are. This is like when my wife says to me, "Um, Patrick, do you want peanut butter and jelly for dinner? Do you feel like that? No, I don't feel like that. Uh, what about a grilled cheese sandwich? Uh, I don't feel like that. Uh, quesadilla? Not feeling that either. Okay, fine. Tell me what you want. That's, that's this in essence. Are you this? Are you this? Are you this? Fine. Just tell us who you are. We're going to, we got to get past all these denials. Tell us who you are. Who are you? And then verse 22, so that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? There is such a tone here of belittling and looking down. John, you have to answer to a higher authority, buddy. Give us an answer because we have to go tell the authorities, the religious authorities, where's your permit to do what you're doing, religiously speaking? You don't have a religious permit. We haven't given it to you. We need to go tell the authorities. The irony is they may have been sent, sent by the Pharisees. John was sent by God. Um, The Jews are saying, you have to answer to a higher authority, our religious leaders. And John is saying, you have to answer to the ultimate authority, God, very God. And they say to him, "What, what do you say about yourself? Could be translated, what do you say for yourself? What do you have to say for yourself? Again, so belittling. It's like a little child and a parent looks down. What do you have to say for yourself, mister? What do you have to say for yourself? And John speaks up, verse 23. I am a voice. I'm a voice. There were so many things that John could have said right there. Who are you? John could have said, I am the son of Zacharias. You remember him? Um, Gabriel spoke to him and then shut his mouth for nine months and then opened his mouth again. Everybody knew who that was. Everybody knew that miracle and what was going on. Everybody knew Zacharias and Elizabeth had John. Everybody knew that. Those are my parents. Hey, guess what? I am the man that Gabriel announced my birth. I'm the man who is filled in the womb by the Holy Spirit. That's who I am. And yet John just simply says, I'm a voice. It reminds me of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, who says, I'm, I'm the least of the saints. I'm nobody. I'm a nobody. Who are you? Are you the Messiah? No, I'm nobody. Don't, don't look at me. Don't look to me. Just listen to me. I'm a voice. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 through 5. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. This is in that Elijah prophecy. The forerunner would come. Uh, Malachi tells us this is the job of the forerunner who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. This is that man. The forerunner would do what? Make straight the way of the Lord. You remember we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. The forerunner's job, literally, physically speaking, before a king, the herald would go before and say, Hey, guess what? Your king's coming and the road's messy and we don't want him to be bumpy and, and get you know, car sick here, so let's pave the road. If there's molehills, let's chop them down and let's fill in the potholes, let's get this road straight. If it's crooked and we don't want him to fall off the edge of a cliff, so let's straighten this thing out. That's the herald's job. So, what's John's job when he says, I'm just a voice? He's in the wilderness, for sure, but he isn't out there with a bulldozer making the the way straight. What is he doing? Isaiah chapter 40 says that the forerunner's job is to uh, build up the low places, level the high places, make straight the crooked ground, and soften up the rough ground. Four things. What does John do? Low places. They're sinful, debased things that we love, that we cling to. And John says, repent. Repent of those. Turn from those. If you want those things, you cannot have a part in the kingdom of heaven. High places, that's pride, that's self-righteousness. He needs to tear down the self-righteous attitude that we have. Maybe I can be good enough to earn God's favor. And John says, no, you need someone to earn it for you. You need the Messiah. Crooked, that's a great word for unrighteous or perverted ways. John says, let's fix the unrighteous perverted ways in your heart and make them straight. Rough ground, stubborn, rebellious. John is trying to dig it up and make it soft. What is the wilderness? The wilderness is a place where there's only death, no life. And John says to each and every listener, your soul is a wilderness. Nothing but death, only, only death. And if you want life, you need somebody else to give it to you. And so he says, I am just a voice, as Isaiah the prophet said. By the way, this side note, that's a great way to answer people. Who are you? What are you doing? What's going on? Why do you do what you do? Oh, well, I do it because Scripture tells me that. Quote Scripture. That's what Jesus did in the temptations. That's what John's doing here. Verse 24 says that they had been sent from the Pharisees. Pharisees just means um, separate ones, set-apart ones. They wanted to remain pure because they thought, um, in my own good works, I can earn my way to God. So they asked him, And said to him, why then are you baptizing if you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet? They're just saying, by what right do you have to do this? Show us us your card. Show us your permit. You're not a part of our union here. Um, Why are you doing this? What authority do you have? And he answers, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you don't know. He's here. You don't know him. And it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. They say, why are you doing this? Who are you? And he says, so well, are you guys still on me? (laughs) I'm not worthy to even untie this guy's sandals. Stop looking to me. It's not about me. And he says, I just baptized with water. But the one who comes after me is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I only look at the externals. That's all I can do. I'm trying to preach to the heart. He actually can get to your heart and change your heart. I can't do that. Stop looking to me. In essence, he says something that all preachers, all biblical preachers should say, which is get past the preacher to the one that the preacher is speaking about. Don't look to me. Look to Christ. And in so much as I am telling you about Christ, then hang on every word. But just look past me and look to Christ. Christ. It is one who comes after me. I can't even untie his sandals. I'm not worthy. He's the one to look to. Verse 28, a little bit of an aside. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Why do they include the location? Well, number one, because it's close to Jerusalem. So uh, there's a little bit of an understanding of um, why the Pharisees are so involved in this. Hey, there's a lot of our people going out to this place. Number two, as I, I read in one commentary, Um, This verse is given to us to prove that John was not a Presbyterian. Um, He he needed a river to baptize people and not just sprinkle them. Um, So I'll I'll take that. I like that. He um, fully immersed them into the Jordan River. He couldn't just take water and sprinkle them. So his first day, the message is very clear. I am not the Messiah. The Messiah is here, and you need to follow him. You need to follow him. That's day one. Day two, verse 29. Day two, his message changes to behold the lamb. There he is. Look to him. Don't look at me. And now he's not speaking to the Jews. He's just speaking to the masses. So let's pick it up. Verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus. So Jesus is returning from his temptation. Again, about six weeks earlier, he was baptized and went through his temptation immediately after that. And he sees Jesus coming. And he says, behold The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every good Jewish person would have expected, behold, God's king, the Messiah, the anointed one who was anointed with oil. It was a king. Behold, God's king. Behold, the Messiah. Behold, the anointed one. And what do they hear instead? Behold, the lamb. Behold, the lamb. Behold, the lamb. This was kind of the central theme of our, our Passion Week study when we looked at Good Friday and Easter. And those messages are back on the on the welcome table for you in CD format. Um, if you haven't been able to listen to those, we're just looking at the lamb who was slain on Good Friday and then on Easter Sunday, worthy is that lamb. Um, we flesh out a lot of what it means to be the lamb of God. But let me give you just a couple pointers. What does it mean to be the lamb? Uh, one amazing truth is every father, you remember Passover, you remember um, the lamb would be slain for the family and the, the blood would be put on the doorpost and the angel of death would pass over. That's where you get the name Passover. And God told Moses to tell all of the Israelites that every father, his job was to pick a spotless lamb. And I love this because it's, it's almost as if the father looks in heaven and says, who's going to be the spotless lamb? Who's worthy to do this? Who's able to do this? And he picks the only spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, and says, I choose you to go and be slaughtered on, my, on the behalf of my people. What does the lamb of God do? He substitutes himself in the place of the sinner. That's why he takes the sin away. Uh, the word there is atone. Um, he, he removes it and he covers it. Our sin is worthy of our judgment and punishment and death. All of us have sinned, Romans 3.23, and the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is our death. It's our separation from God. So the Lamb of God takes that death upon himself, takes our sin away, takes away the sin of the world. Does that mean that we believe everyone is saved? No, because Jesus himself will say uh, the road is wide and many are those who find it and it leads to destruction. The road is narrow and few are those who find it and it leads to eternal life. So what does this mean? It means this. For the world, there is only one sacrifice that can take away your sin, and that's Jesus. That's the Lamb of God. If you want your sin removed, there's only one way, and it's the Lamb. It's the Lamb. John the Baptist says, This is He, pointing again to the Lamb. This is He on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Wait a second. John the Baptist was born before Jesus. And John is clearly teaching us, this is the Son of God. This is God, very God, because I was born first, but he existed before me. He is eternal. I am not. Verse 31, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. I came baptizing in water, but he's going to do something amazing. John testified, verse 32, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I didn't recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize, that's God. God sent John to baptize in water, said to John, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. What is John about to saying? He's saying, guys, I know that this is God. I know that this is him because God told me that the sign of this being the Messiah is that the Holy Spirit would descend like a dove? And, and please, just—I know we kind of have like Thomas Kincaid paintings in our minds where it's, you know there's a dove floating down. It's like a dove. It's not a physical dove. If you want, you could put the word butterfly in there. Like, I don't know, doves just kind of float down. That's the idea. It's just the way that the Spirit descended. It wasn't like a flash of lightning or some fire just instantly coming down. It was careful. It was slow. It was gentle, probably so that John could see and others could see. Here's the Spirit. I don't know what form he took. Maybe it was a tongue of fire. But John says... God the Father told me there's a sign. You want to know who the Messiah is? I'll give you the sign. The Messiah is the one. When you baptize him, the Spirit's going to descend like a dove would descend and rest upon him. And John says, Guys, I saw that. I have no doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, why would people have doubt? Why is he saying that? Why do we have doubt? Because he's a human? Because he's a man? John doubted. You remember at the end of John's life, he doubted. Is this really, is he truly the Messiah? John probably grew up with him. He didn't recognize him, not in the physical sense. He knew who he was, but he didn't recognize him as God, very God. Jesus didn't have a halo around his head. John's saying, trust me, he is. I know he is. And it's not based on my feeling. It's not based on miracles. It's not based on any of that. It's based on God's truth. God told me, I will give you a sign. This is the sign. I saw that sign. When God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And I know that he truly is the Messiah. Also in our sanctified imagination, verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he says, behold, the lamb of God. Um, We don't have a clear picture of the timetable, like days Was this days after the temptation or weeks? Even if it is weeks after Jesus' temptation, 40 days without food, uh, you're going to look a little bit different, right? And I wonder, I wonder if John's words are used here because people look and they say, really? That's our Messiah? An emaciated man? Looks like he could fall over at any minute? Really? That's the guy we're supposed to follow? Even if you drop down into verse, um, it's 36. The next day, John's going to say, as Jesus walks by, behold the Lamb of God again. Two disciples will hear him and speak, and they follow Jesus, and Jesus turns to follow them, and he says, what are you seeking? And they say, Rabbi, okay, of all the questions that you could ask God, of all the questions, what are you seeking? They ask where are you staying now i think it's twofold and I'm, I'm kind of this is for next week i think it's twofold i think number one they're saying we want to dwell with you but i think number two they could genuinely be asking do you have a home do you have food you, you look like you haven't eaten in maybe like 40 days or something are you okay maybe that's why john's saying guys trust me this is him i know it's him It may not look like him. It may not be what you thought he would be, but destroy all of your preconceived ideas about who he's supposed to be and listen to God's testimony. He says he's the Lamb of God, and then verse 34, I have seen and have testified this is the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Son of God. He is God, very God. There is no doubt. The most credible of all sources is saying very clearly, this is God, very God. Not based on my feelings, not based on physical material things or impressions or miracles. This is God, very God, based on God telling me this is who he is. Day three. Day one's message is he's here. Don't know where he is. He went on his little uh, temptation uh, with uh, the Holy Spirit driving him out. He's here somewhere. I don't know where he is. Day two. Oh, I know where he is. There he is. Behold the lamb. Day three. His message is very clearly follow him. There he is. Go with him. Verse 35, again, the next day, day three, John was standing with two of his disciples. I love how the groups just get smaller. He has a big, huge group of Jews coming to, to interrogate. Then he has a massive people, maybe around the same size, but then it gets to two people, two disciples. We actually know who those disciples are in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. The second disciple isn't named. So we know Andrew and the second disciple, because he's not named, and there's kind of a cryptic way that he's not naming himself, and that's what John does all the time in the gospel. So we're guessing that it's probably Andrew and John. These two disciples are with John the Baptist. They've been following him probably for about a year. And verse 36, he sees Jesus. He looks at Jesus as he walks by, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two, in verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. John the Baptist had to have prepped them. He had to have prepared them. As they are hanging on John the Baptist. every word, he's constantly saying, guys, I'm just a voice. Don't, don't get attached to me. It's not about me. It's about the Messiah. It's about Jesus. It's not about me. And he prepped them so well that when he says, hey, remember that guy I've been talking about? It's him, behold the lamb. They go, thanks, we're done with you. And he doesn't say, no, 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 come back, please. He doesn't say, Jesus, can I join your side and your mission and be with you? He says, go. My job has always been to get you to leave me. That's always been my job. The whole point of his ministry, don't follow me, follow Jesus. And we'll pick up day three uh, next week. But just in conclusion with John the Baptist, um, we, we can kind of put this into a, a twofold scenario as hearers of the gospel and as proclaimers of the gospel. We can put ourselves in the in the shoes of the Jews, uh, the disciples, the masses, the crowds. As hearers of John's testimony, you heard it today. You've heard it from John's lips, as it were. And everybody knows he's a prophet. He's sent by God. So here, as hearers, you need to decide this morning, are you going to accept his testimony? Are you going to believe his testimony? You've listened to it. You have to decide whether you're going to believe it. If you're not going to believe it, then you have to say John was lying. And if you say John is lying, then you have to say Jesus is lying. And if you say Jesus is lying, then I don't know what we're doing here. But if you truly believe, wait, he was sent by God because God said that he sent him and Jesus has been sent by God because John says he was sent by God and he is the Messiah and he is the son of God. He is God, very God. Then we have to believe that message. It needs to change how we live. If Jesus is God, then everything he has said is truth. It is right. It is without error. And it is for us to believe and to follow. We cannot take Jesus and say he's a cool guy. Nobody in this book did that. Nobody who walked with him did that. There were only two responses to Jesus. You either say he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and I will submit myself to him. He has hold of my life. Or you say, let's kill him. There's no middle ground there. So we need to listen to John's testimony. Do you believe that Jesus... Is God come in the flesh? Do you believe that Jesus is the only way that your sin can be taken away? Do you believe that message? Do you even believe you're a sinner in need of a savior? Do you believe that there is no other way, that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life? Is that what you believe? As hearers, we need to ask ourselves these questions. And then as proclaimers of the gospel. Number two, just in conclusion, as, as proclaimers of the gospel, we need to take our cue from John. We want to be like John. John is one of my heroes. John the Baptist is one of my heroes in the Bible because he just doesn't care. God sent me. I do what God tells me to do. It's like the, the parable that Jesus talks about the slaves who no, no slave when he does what his master has told him to do, goes back to his master and says, now, can I be thanked? Can I get kudos? Can I get some money? I have done everything you told me to do. All the slave says is I'm still unworthy. I'm just a slave. And all I did was do what you told me to do. That's it. That's it. John is saying, I am nothing special. I am just a voice. And he does exactly what there's a Puritan author who says his his goal in life is to live his life, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's my goal. I want to preach the gospel, I want to live to the glory of God. I'm going to die one day, and then who cares? Let me be forgotten. It doesn't matter. If Jesus is remembered, that's all I care about. If Jesus is remembered through the lives of this congregation, if Jesus is remembered through the lives of the the kids of this congregation, if Jesus is remembered through my kids and my grandkids, that's all that matters. Forget me, know Jesus, and never forget him. And John did that. John preached the gospel. He's thrown into prison. His head gets cut off. And that's why Jesus said, there's nobody better in your midst, nobody greater than him. Look to him. So let's take our cue from John the Baptist. If we want to be proclaimers like he is a proclaimer of the gospel, number one, we must know who Jesus is. We must know who Jesus is. There can't be a question about that. He's not saying, behold, the Lamb of God. He says, I know without a shadow of a doubt who this is. Do you know who Jesus is? Because if you don't, as they say about preaching... If it's a little bit um, of a mist here in my mind, if I can't fully understand something and I'm trying to share it with you, it becomes a gargantuan fog out in in the mind of the hearers. If it's a mist up here, it's just foggy for everybody else. Same thing is true about our preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. If you're fuzzy on the person of Jesus Christ, then your proclamation of him to others is going to be very incoherent. We need to know who Jesus is. Number two, we need to know who we are. John the Baptist, over and over again, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm not worthy. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, which was the lowest job of a slave. You couldn't get lower in the economy of that day. And John the Baptist says, I- I'm lower. We would look at him. Most people would look at him at John the Baptist today and say, man, this poor guy has a self-esteem problem. Huh. Poor guy. I think he would look at us, I would look at us, and say, No, we have a pride problem. We need to see ourselves in light of God's holiness. We're not worthy. We need to humble ourselves. John never asks for honor, money, pay, title, no flattering words, not even seeking disciples. Just look to Jesus. And number three, if we're to be like John, We must know who Jesus is, number one. We must know who we are, number two. And number three, we'll put it this way. We need to live in such a way that demands a response from onlookers. We need to live in such a way that demands a response from onlookers. And I am not saying that we all of a sudden become like John and go into the wilderness and wear camel's hair and eat locusts and honey. We don't do that. This is the way that we are radical. We are a voice. John says, I'm a voice. That's all I am. A voice speaks. The most obvious statement of the universe. A voice speaks. Can I just ask you, when was the last time you spoke the gospel? I was talking to Pastor Todd Smith at the men's retreat. Their church plant started with uh, 16 people, I believe it was, in his home. And eight years later, there are hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, I think. And he would align with us doctrinally, you know, not not secret sensitive, not you know, doing crazy things. And I said, can I just ask you, I, I'm, I'm not into numbers for numbers sake. I'm into people hearing the gospel. I want people to hear the gospel. I want to make disciples. That's what our commandment by God is. Go and make disciples. So we need to be doing that. I said, can I just ask you how you did that? And he said, yeah. He said, I told our people every week, every Sunday, who did you share the gospel with this week? They put in a bulletin, we're actually going to do this. I think it's a great idea. Um, A little business card that just says, hey, you're invited. Um, Our our welcome cards, these, uh, I used to have one out here. These big guys, these are great. These are great. We keep them at our door, but can't really fit well in a pocket. If you have a little business card. Every week, we're going to put a little business card in your bulletin. And my encouragement, every week, who do you know that doesn't know Jesus that needs to hear about him? Give that. And what I love about this card is it has a lot of information. It's very helpful so people can know what the church is about. So I asked Pastor Todd, well, what about that? I showed him one of our cards. I said, our cards are, are really good, and they're, they're powerful. They're big. They've got a lot of information about our church. And he said, yeah, and don't, with the business card, you're not moving away from that. But the things that are on the card, the big card, instead of leaving them on the card with this little business card, now they're in the mouths of the people as they're inviting. Now they're saying, this is what our church is about. This is what we do. This really hit home for me because I I was looking at my life. I, I try to share the gospel as often as i can and i'm passing these things out left and right grocery stores pizza place i mean all over the place but i don't know these people very well <laughs> at all <laughs> hello hi who are you i'm patrick here's the card so the question is and this is my question to you who do you know who do you know friend coworker family member that doesn't know jesus we need to start inviting them with our voices we need to preach the gospel to them with our voices. And what do we preach? Verse 29 is what we preach. It's the essence of the gospel in one sentence. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You need to know who you are. You need to know who God is. and You need to know the provision made for your sin in Jesus Christ. And as you preach, don't be discouraged. Look to John. John had masses, and then he had disciples, and then he had no one. That's why it's not about the numbers. It's about being faithful to be a voice. Who have you shared the gospel with lately? Kent Hughes says it this way. The lamb is our eternal message. The encounter between Abraham and Isaac prophesied his sacrifice. The Passover applied the principle of his sacrifice. Isaiah 53 personified his sacrifice. John 1 identified the sacrifice and it is magnified in Revelation 5. 19 through 14 or 9 through 14 the sacrificial death of christ is the essence of our message our message is simply behold the lamb may we be like john simply a voice sharing the gospel with anything that breathes and leaving the results to god god thank you so much for your word thank you for john's testimony and we ask that you would take our voice and let it be filled with messages for you. We ask that you would take our lives. We, we gather together for the purpose of learning about you. We gather together for the purpose of being edified and uh, raising our affections for your son and being blown away at, yet again at who he is and uh, in light of uh, who we are and how uh, depraved and sinful we are, that he would love us, that he would condescend to us, that he would take our place on the cross, die the death that we deserve, rise to newness of life, offering us that life. We are blown away by that message and we'll never get over the gospel in heaven. We're always going to be blown away by it. But God, we scatter to help other people be blown away by that message. That's what John did. That's what we want to do. And so we simply pray with our lips, with our voices, through song, take our lives and let them be used by you to glorify yourself, to magnify the sacrifice of your son and to bring many people to a knowledge of the Savior.